It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Hello, everyone. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show, and it's great to be with you. We got plenty to talk about today. My God, we got misinformation. We got inflation. We got all kinds of stuff to go through, honestly. Stock market is hit, getting slammed. It's not good. GDP fell. It's not good. But we do have a power pack show. We will talk to Senator Roger Marshall at the half hour, rising conservative star in the Senate from the great state of Kansas. I Look, I've got to begin. I mean, I just have to begin with this uh, Biden disinformation board. I mean, this is George Orwell, right? George Orwell. It's just too good to be truth. It's the Ministry of Truth. That's what Orwell called it. By the way, Orwell, who was talking about communism, himself was a liberal who, if you had anybody remember, and you're going to have to all listen to this, you'll Google up George Orwell because probably nobody remembers who he was, but he was a very famous author who wrote a very famous book, I think the book was written in the early 1980s. I think I could be wrong about that. But in any case, it was a book about communism and the evils of communism and the lack of free speech and how everybody had to conform to what everybody else wanted to do. And there was a there was a ministry of truth to keep the to keep everybody in line. So we learned this week that the Bidens have set up this thing. It's called the Disinformation Governance Board. And it sits in the Department of Homeland Security. And Alejandra Mayorkas Mallorca, uh, unveiled this in a couple of congressional hearings. And then it will be led by this Nina Jankowitz, uh, who is a real nut job. If you've seen on any of the newscasts or on Twitter or any place her her uh, tweets of she was singing to Mary Poppins about this uh, misinformation, Mary Poppins. I mean, she's just a real nut job. Maybe more to the point, she herself has a history of spreading disinformation because in an earlier life, she um, took a strong position. The Hunter Biden laptop was just Russian disinformation. Uh, She strongly supported the charges of Russian collusion uh, and, you know, secret communications between the Trump campaign uh, and Russia, all of which was, you know, utter nonsense, all this stuff from, uh, what is it, GPS fusion, the British ex-spy Christopher Steele. Anyway, to her, that was information. It turns out that was total disinformation. Uh, she said Hunter Biden laptop story was um, nonsense, right? It was just another Russian plant. Turns out that was true. So she doesn't know what she's doing. She's pretty dangerous in this job. But the point is, this is a kind of Soviet-style or Vladimir Putin-style attempt to suppress information sitting inside a very powerful agency, the Department of Homeland Security. We will have on the show later on, we will have the former secretary of DHS, my great friend Chad Wolf's going to talk about that. Madam Saki, my favorite press secretary, said yesterday that the Trump administration had 
a similar misinformation board. That's just utter nonsense, a flat-out, bald-faced lie. Uh, John Radcliffe, <laughs> former director of national intelligence on my Fox business show, Cudlow, we had him on as a guest, and he asked me a great question. He said, do you suppose if Trump had a misinformation board, anybody would have said anything about that? Yeah, good point. They would have gone berserk. The left would have gone berserk. So there was no such thing in the Trump administration. But this thing is a Soviet-style effort to suppress information. Okay, that's what it is. Free speech crushing. And incidentally, I don't think it's a coincidence that this comes really right in the wake of Elon Musk's purchase of Twitter, which is being done in Elon's own words to restore free speech and democracy. He calls himself a free speech absolutist. He is my hero. It's just, uh, I think, kind of a counter to that. That's what this uh, board of misinformation is. It may be a counter to that, or at least the timing of the announcement now, the thing had been a couple of months old, but nobody thought much about it. My Arcus says it almost offhandedly in congressional hearings this past week. And then it turns out this crazy woman, Nina Jankowitz, uh, surfaces as the executive director of it. Don't really know precisely what this is about. But, I mean, he, this is so interesting to me. My Arcus said, okay. Part of the misinformation he's concerned about would be some kind of cyber hacking by Russia. I'm okay with that. That's a traditional Department of Homeland Security issue, fighting cyber hacking by the Russians. Maybe, maybe misinformation about immigration, illegal immigrants coming up uh, through our southern border would be illegals coming across, you could argue that we might want to counter what um, the coyotes and the, um, and the narco-terrorists are telling people. But then you see the tip-off that it's really free speech suppressing, it's really a left-wing attempt to suppress conservative free speech. The tip-off is when Mallorca starts talking about how this... Uh, Misinformation Governance Board will talk about education and will talk about elections, right? Election. Now, election information, what does that mean? And what would the Department of Homeland Security be doing talking about elections? That's not their mandate. I mean, we have a Justice Department to deal with that. I, I, I know that the Biden Justice Department is on the wrong side of all the issues there. Education, really? Is this like parents are domestic terrorists because they came to school board meetings and they objected to their kids being taught about racism? All white people are bad? Or gender? Or transgender? Or sex education for five-year-olds? Didn't we just go through this last fall in the election when Virginia candidate Glenn Youngkin won for governor really on the strength of defending the parental role in education? Now this misinformation board is going to get involved in that? This sounds like 
suppressing, stopping conservative point of view. I mean, I think that's exactly what this is all about. And it is way, way, way beyond anything anybody imagined. And it's certainly not the role of the Department of Homeland Security. So here are the Bidens trying to stifle free speech. And in particular, I think you got the Bidens trying to stifle conservative free speech. Isn't that the story? I mean, isn't that really the story? We're really talking speech police. Speech police, Soviet style, Putin style. Curb free speech. Curb the First Amendment. And this is one of the worst things we've seen. This is a major political blunder. I mean, I don't think it will ever happen. I I mean, I think that people are going to go after this so badly, so hard. It's unconstitutional. It will be defunded. I mean, they put it, it's interesting, they put this thing inside the office of the secretary, all right, which means it's, you know, part of Mayorkas staff. That's a totally political operation, obviously. That's much different than cybersecurity and infrastructure security agency that that Trump uh, maintained, which is a traditional DHS. And um, there'll be no congressional oversight in the secretary's office. But, of course, there will be. I mean, you've got people howling about this and this crazy woman, uh, you know, and her her Facebook or whatever it was, YouTube, I don't know what it was, talking about misinformation to the tune of Mary Poppins. I mean, she's just a really nut job. But look, at I want to uh, link this to this kind of attempts at government control of free speech, okay? This is kind of like the near cousin to what Mr. Biden's woke economic policies. I mean, in both cases, this is the government seeking to control. In one case, to control speech. In another case, to control the economy. Big government, socialism. Statist, central planning. A regulatory state. That's what they've tried to do war against fossil fuels. I mean, the Bidens want to take over the energy sector with the Green New Deal. The Bidens want the state to run all health care. They want the state to run banking and finance. Lately, there's a terrible bill. We'll talk about this with Senator Marshall in a few moments uh, to start to take over the um, technology and uh, chip sector, the semiconductor sector. This is just completely alien to the American tradition. And I do think it's a response to the dramatic moves by Elon Musk to open up free speech to social media by buying out Twitter. I mean, I really think this is clearly a response. These guys want to control your free speech and they want to control the economy. They don't believe in the freedom to speak or the freedom to worship or the freedom of parents. They don't believe in the freedom of opportunity. They don't believe in the freedom to succeed. They don't believe in free market entrepreneurial capitalism. It's really ultra far left stuff. Ultra far left stuff. Way outside any American tradition. We've never seen anything like this. The Ministry of Truth. 
Stalin had a ministry of truth. Hitler had a ministry of truth. Am I comparing Biden to Stalin and Hitler? No, not specifically, but I'm saying to you, in general terms, this is the same approach and attempts to control speech, which is the very heart of democracy and freedom. It's the very heart of the American tradition, and everyone is in uproar about this. It's another major political blunder by the Bidens who are going down to defeat. The only good thing that I can say about that is folks should take heart, try to keep your chin up. The cavalry is coming. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're going to take a quick break on the side of the break. We'll talk a little bit about inflation and the stock market. None of that's doing very well either. The Ministry of Truth, folks, we're going to crush it and reject it and throw it out. And we're going to throw Biden out, too. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Please join us during the week on Fox Business Network. The name of the show is Kudlow. It's 4 to 5 p.m. every single day. And if for some reason you can't see us from 4 to 5, dial up your favorite nine-year-old who will show you how to DVR the show. I think you'll enjoy it. Besides this misinformation board, we had a lot of economic news this week. Uh, The GDP fell 1.4%. That was a bit of a surprise. Stock market got clobbered this week. Stocks are having a tough time, but right now, year to date, year to date, I'm just going through my stock sheet. Stocks fell 939 points on the Dow Jones. Year to date, the NASDAQ, the tech-heavy NASDAQ is off 21%. The S&P is off 13%. Uh, The GDP was a bad number. The biggest issue, let me just sort of summarize briefly. We will come back to this later in the show uh, with uh, former CEA chair uh, Tomas Philipson. But the big issue here, the big story here is the continuing high inflation rate which is coming in at 8% for the broadest measures, the very broadest measures. And that's a problem, folks. The Fed's target for inflation is 2. The actual inflation rate is 8. And this high inflation rate, which is covering everything, all right, food, energy, services, goods, you name it, everything. Prices are skyrocketing across the board, gasoline and so forth. Um, This is cutting into worker wages. You know, wages have done well. The labor market is fairly tight. But even a 6% increase in wages, which is historically quite high, is eaten up by an 8% inflation rate. I mean, actually, you go back to the stock market. So let's say the S&P 500 is off 13% year to date. Well, you got to put that, that's a nominal number. you got to put that adjusted for inflation in real terms. That means it's actually down by 21%. So you got yourself a bear market on inflation-adjusted basis. It's the same story with worker wages. They're doing well. The workforce is productive. But unfortunately, they're losing 2% net of inflation. And that is going to be a continuing problem. And the Federal Reserve will have its meeting this coming week. 
and we'll see how aggressive they're going to be in fighting inflation. I mean, look, they got to raise their target rate, which is presently a quarter of a percent, 25 basis points. They got to raise their target rate. They There's talk about 50 basis points hike, 75 basis points hike. It's not likely that we're going to curb inflation, which is singularly a monetary problem. I mean, there's too much government spending, too much deficit finance, too much borrowing, and too much money printing. In fact, the more the government spends, the more pressure it puts on the central bank to print money to finance the spending through borrowing. Now, that's not stopped. We're still spending like drunken sailors. And there's a huge bill, a so-called China Compete Bill, that would spend another $300 billion. But my point is, the Fed's target interest rate, called the federal funds rate, okay, stay with me, that thing's got to be higher than the inflation rate. So right now, if inflation were 8%, which it is, they really need a 9 or 10 or 11% Fed funds rate. That's how Paul Volcker slayed inflation 40 years ago. We're nowhere near that. And the Fed has got to stop printing money. Their so-called balance sheet, quantitative easing, has to turn into quantitative tightening. The money supply is slowing slightly, but it's still running around 10%. they got to cut that back. They're going to have to take seriously draconian measures. Right now, we're in a stagflation position. What does that mean? It means the inflation rate is above the economy's growth rate. So when you look at these numbers, growth minus 1.4, that's a little quirky number, but actually the underlying growth of the economy is about 2 to 3% right now, but the inflation rate is 8 So that's a bad position for us to be in. And I've said on on the Fox Business Show that we could be on the front end of a recession. We will go through and, you know, first we have stagflation, and then next year that could lead to a recession as the Fed takes the punch bowl away. We're not there yet. We're not in a recession yet. There's some strength in the economy, particularly business. The Trump tax cuts have spurred some pretty good business investment and business equipment spending. But I just want to make the point that coming out of all these numbers this week was a high inflation rate, which means the Fed is going to have to be tougher, which is one reason why stocks have been hemorrhaging. We'll take a quick break, and on the other side of the break, we will talk to Senator Roger Marshall of the great state of Kansas, one of the Senate's leading conservative voices I'm Larry Kudlow, folks. Please stay right here. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is The Larry Kudlow Show. By the way, you can live stream us on the Internet. It's LarryKudlowShow.com. LarryKudlowShow.com. Live stream us on the Internet throughout the country, around the world, and through the solar system as well. We welcome to the show... A rising conservative star in the U.S. Senate, Senator Roger Marshall of the great state of Kansas. Senator Marshall, thank you, sir, for coming on. We appreciate it. You, you bet, Larry. I'm honored and can't, 
can't wait to hear the conversation. I always learn something every time I listen to you. Well, you're very kind. Look, I, first of all, I want to begin with an, an apology to our listeners uh, talking about this crazy misinformation governing board and um, the Ministry of Truth, which was coined by George Orwell writing about communism, Soviet communism. And I said, the books are written in the early 80s. That is completely false. My apologies, my bad. <clears throat> the two famous books on uh, suppressing truth and ending free speech and attacking communism. The first one was Animal Farm, and that was written in 1945. And the second one, his masterpiece, was called 1984, and that was written in 1949. So I want to apologize to everybody who heard that. I looked it up. I knew it didn't feel right. But, Senator Marshall, uh, this is a remarkable turn of events, this uh, disinformation board, uh, which some people are calling the Ministry of Truth, which is what Orwell uh, had in his book. And I've got to get your take on that. I know you're going to hate it the way we all do, but the question, sir, now is how to deal with it, how to stop it. You know, it's got this crazy nutcase woman who's running it. It sits in uh, Secretary Mayorka's office inside the Department of Homeland Security. So what you think, and how can we uh, how can we erase this thing? Yeah, Larry, certainly as I talk to folks back home, after inflation and after their safety and security, their God-given constitutional rights are traditional Kansas values are what they're concerned about. And this is one more attack on this administration of those values, whether it's uh, freedom of religion, freedom of speech, uh, they're being attacked. Uh, and they're not even making apologies about it. So we'll do everything we can to fight it. Of course, we can attack it through legislation um, and through lawsuits as well. But really, we need a, a change in the White House. We need a change uh, in Congress as well, who could control the legislation, the, the agenda mostly. Yeah, you know, you're right about that. I mean, the cavalry's coming. We'll sweep Congress. You could, Senator Marshall, uh, in, explore and investigate defunding it. I mean, you could defund it. Uh, you, you could defund it through the appropriations process. That's one way. But I, I'm wondering, you know, holding hearings would probably be very useful also, some oversight. Exactly. And I think that we have to have the gavels in our hand for those issues to really make a difference. Yeah. The chairman of the committee basically sets the determination, who are we going to provide oversight, what type of hearings. But you're absolutely right. We still do have the power of the purse, and Congress needs to uh, seize the day and start doing more of that. You know, a couple of the, the scary stuff here. I mean, look, I don't have any trouble if you're protecting the U.S. from a Russia cyberspace attack, which they have done. But, you know, Mayorkas, uh, before Congress, Mayorkas talked about this um, governance, misinformation governance board regarding elections. Really? Elections? And then he also has talked about it regarding education. You know, Senator, the education thing kind of reminds me of, you know, parents are domestic terrorists, right? Because they uh, don't want school boards and the teachers union to uh, tell them all about uh, sex and gender and critical race theory for five-year-olds. I mean, that education thing and the election thing uh, really was a scary, uh, a scary, scary topics. 
You're right, Larry, and you probably know that I'm an OBGYN. I've helped so many young ladies through some troubling times as adolescents, and even with as much experience as I had dealing with it, I don't think I'm qualified to talk about transgender issues uh, to, to young kids or to teach a class or, you know, how do you deal with gender dysphoria, realizing that 80% of the people that have this gender dysphoria uh, grow out of it, so to speak, and they're glad they didn't do any irreversible surgeries or take irreversible hormones. And I want to share with you one of the things that we are doing. We're uh, sending a letter to the TV Parental Guidelines Monitoring Board to, to try to push back on uh, Disney a little bit here, where Disney is saying they're going to start having pro-transgender issues brought through so, through their programming as well. Uh, really, parents uh, feel like we should be in control of teaching sex ed. I understand we need to teach biology in ninth grade or so, but this is such a, a hot-button issue. We want local parents, local school boards to be in control of this, certainly not the White House. Yeah, well, certainly not the Department of Homeland Security, I would think. I mean, that's a little bit beyond their bound. I mean, the whole idea here, Senator, you know, it's suppressing free speech. Isn't that where this is going? And I, I don't think it's a coincidence. Maybe I'm wrong. But I don't think it's a coincidence that this um, uh, misinformation governing board surfaces, you know, right after Elon Musk is taking over Twitter to open up free speech on social media. I mean, I don't think it's a coincidence. I think this is a stupid political ploy by the White House. You know, absolutely. Uh, my wife has been suggesting this for several years. We need conservatives, and maybe in this case it's a little more of a libertarian, uh, purchasing some of these national media so we can have free speech. And the question I would have for my friends across the aisle, what civilization in history pro- pro- had progress succeeded by suppressing speech, by suppressing thought? I've always believed that you and I get together with some of our friends, and we, we throw out different ideas, we debate it, and together we come up with a better plan. And you know, even just the thought of if you and I were on this board, you know, I, I think there, I, I would be, we would struggle to agree on what is disinformation. We need to err on the side of more information, not less. Yeah, I mean, um, yeah, I would say kill the board. I would say save America, kill the board. There you go. That's that's where I'd go with that one. We'll see how we can do. Now, what Mayorkas ought to be doing with the Department of Homeland Security is protecting our border and closing our border. And that's what he's not doing because, of course, he subscribes to Biden's open border. Now, that leads me to another topic, and that is the whole business of Title 42. Where does that stand, Senator, and can can that be beaten? Well, you know, the courts are at least standing up for us, but I'm assuming that the White House is going to ignore the court order and proceed on May 23rd. And on May 23rd, the number of people crossing the border is going to double or triple. And I want to bring this home for your listeners. Kansas, the state of Kansas, has 3 million people. Since Joe Biden was sworn in, three million people have been apprehended at the border, and maybe twice that many have crossed. Since Joe, Bo- Joe Biden was sworn in, six tons of fentanyl have been captured, and again, maybe twice that much got across the borders. I just learned two days ago, one of the uh, young boys I delivered 15 years ago overdosed from fentanyl. We had two boys uh, overdosed from 
it's, it's really it's Percocet laced with fentanyl uh, that mm-hmm. overdosed in Kansas. Twenty five hundred uh, cases of overdose. People need to realize that one teaspoon of fentanyl could kill two thousand people. So mm-hmm. th- this administration is derelict in their duties. You know, people back home, I go to these town halls and they say, this is treason, that these people uh, should be impeached. Uh, At first, I thought, well, that was a little aggressive, but they're right. Uh, They have turned their back on national security. This administration has basically opened the floodgates and said, come on in, and along with you, your terrorists, uh, your drugs, all these issues which you've been talking about. Yeah, you know, you think Mayorkas would deal with the border and not worry about misinformation for education and elections. I mean, that's just that's just the strangest part of the story. But then again, he's just doing Biden's bidding, bidding which is really a far-left open borders uh, agenda. Uh, Senator Marshall, is there any way, I mean, there are a lot of Democrat senators who uh, are furious at ending Title 42. Uh, I know that Senator Haggerty, Republican Senator Haggerty, has thought of an interesting idea of if you get rid of Title 42, replace that with an anti-fentanyl campaign as a means of keeping the border closed. Uh, legislatively, sir, is there any uh, optimism, is there anything that leads you to believe this can uh, be stopped? You know, there is. I think that we're basically committed as a Republican caucus that whatever is next on Joe Biden's agenda has to include, along with it, legislation that would keep Title 42 in place. So rather he wants more money for COVID, if he wants to repurpose some monies, what he wants to do in Ukraine, we want to make sure that we solve this problem as well. So that's the gun we're putting at his head. Uh, This is a priority for us. You know, again, people back home in Kansas, biggest concerns are inflation. And number two is their safety and security. And this safety and security begins at the southern border. This is the most immediate national security threat to people in Kansas is this open southern border. So it is a priority for us. So you could uh, try to keep putting riders on various bills. Is that the idea? Yeah, you got it, Larry. So if he he wants to repurpose some $10 billion from unused COVID funds, uh, we're going to say, okay, that's great. But then we need to have a vote on this Title 42 amendment as as well. And I think that we do have the Democrat votes to keep it in place until they do figure out a way, like you're describing, what is the next step? And certainly what Mayorkas has presented is going to make the situation worse. If you use the Mayorkas plan and you stop Title 42, the number of people are going to cross the border on May 23rd is going to double or triple. I plan on being at the border that day. I'm taking sheriffs from Kansas with me, and we'll let America see firsthand what really is going on there. Yeah. All right. Senator, can um, you be patient with us? I got to take a quick commercial break. Uh, On the other side, I want to talk about government spending. I want to talk about this crazy competition with China bill or whatever it's called and a few other matters. We'll just be a quick commercial break, folks. We are talking to Senator Roger Marshall uh, from the great state of Kansas. As I said, truly one of the rising conservative stars in the Senate and the GOP. I'm Larry Kudlow. We'll be right back after this quick message. Larry Kudlow. Listen.
listen to this podcast now on the Red Apple Podcast Network. The Racket Report. Jeff Schumacher, he is the vice president of exhibits and programs of the Mob Museum. I find that there's something to this museum, whether you're something of an expert in mafiology or whether you're a total newcomer learning about this stuff for the very first time. Is that your experience? There are people who have just seen the movies, they've seen The Godfather, they've seen Goodfellas, they've seen Casino, and so they have a fairly you know light understanding of what really happened. What we try very hard is to appeal to them and say, here's how it really went down. Here are some of the stories that you may not have heard of from the movies. And then if you're someone who has read a lot of books, you really understand this stuff, maybe you're even involved in one way or another, we think that we are still going to satisfy your desire to learn more. Download all of Red Apple Media's podcasts right now through your favorite podcast platform. I found hope in the midst of an overwhelming situation. I let go of trying to control things that I had no control over, and that helped me find peace of mind. Alcoholism is a disease that can affect any family. Everyone suffers, but there is help and hope at Al-Anon Family Groups. I was constantly stressed and worried. Now, I approach each day with joy and gratitude. In Al-Anon, families and friends of alcoholics find new ways to heal from the effects of a loved one's drinking. Al-Anon gave me my life back. I'm a better father and husband. Are you in an overwhelming situation because of someone else's drinking? Al-Anon and Alateen can help. Local and virtual meetings are available. Maybe one could work for you. For information, call 1-866-200-0033 or visit alanon.org slash hope. From Wall Street to the White House, this is the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're talking with uh, Kansas Senator Roger Marshall about one thing or another. We're talking about the... uh, Board of Misinformation, but I want to move on. Senator, one of the uh, issues here that troubles me so much, I mean, we're talking about big inflation numbers that were just reported this past week. The uh, basic inflation rate that the Federal Reserve watches is running at 8%. Uh, So much of this comes, as you know, so much of this comes from government overspending and borrowing and then money printing to finance it by the Federal Reserve. But look, there's this bill that is driving me crazy, sir. Uh, it's, some, it's the Compete with China bill or some such thing. It has different titles. Uh, the Senate version had a, a $250 billion price tag. The House version had a $350 billion price tag. I believe it is now in conference, and they're going to try to work things out. I do not understand with an 8% inflation rate, why we would want to continue this rapid spending. That's the problem, not the solution. And anyway, why do we need a bill that, first of all, spends a lot on Green New Deal type stuff, has nothing to do with China, and second of all, is uh, really subsidies, uh, corporate welfare, industrial policies, not going to do anything to help us compete with China. What is the disposition of this bill? And, and how can, rep- I mean, there's, a, I hate to say it, but there's a dozen, 15 Republicans who voted in favor of it. They shouldn't be anywhere near this bill. Yeah, Larry, I agree with you. First of all, this is very inflationary. Um, 
and I'm disappointed. Republicans need to look in the mirror and say, when is enough enough? This legislation started off as $50 billion, five zero, when it was mm. presented to me about a year and a half ago. And would, they said, would you be interested? Well, yeah, it makes sense. We certainly want to bring that supply chain home. And the next thing you know, well, if you get Texas votes, we need another $50 billion. Oh, we're going to bring California, and that's going to be $50 billion. Well, what's Chuck Schumer sweetener in this? Well, lots of research for all the universities in uh, New York having to, something to do with the Green New Deal slash building uh, uh, semiconductors, right? So it's, just, it's well too much. Uh, this is what happens when the federal government gets involved. They're not very efficient with the monies. And, and like you've been talking about on your show for weeks now, this is already happening. There's been private investment in this industry. Uh, the, the market figures it out. We do need to bring these resources here. Taiwan uh, makes about 90 percent of these of these products. They realize that they have too much bottled up there at home, and they're very interested in bringing some of their companies over here. So it's happening already. Another bill you've got to help us kill. You know, I right. So yeah, take the look. The, the Taiwan Semiconductor Company. It's a great company. It's the world's leader in so-called commodity chips. Not the advanced design stuff that, say, a Qualcomm would do. Qualcomm is a very fine company. And by the way, I had dinner with the CEO of Qualcomm not too long ago. He he doesn't really want this bill. But the other point you raised. The the Semiconductor Trade Association itself has said that there's over $200 billion of private investment money, not government, private investment money, that is already going in to the semiconductor chip industry. They are building new plants. They're building new plants. And in fact, you're right. Uh, Taiwan Semiconductor, for example, has come build a plant in uh, Arizona. Uh, I think they got something going in Texas. They may have something going in Oregon, if I'm not mistaken. But my point is, why not let the innovative private sector, the entrepreneurial private sector, do this? How in the world can anybody justify a $300 billion bill, which, by the way, has so much garbage in it, Senator Marshall. I mean, Green New Deal stuff. I mean, I haven't seen the final totals uh, yet from the uh, cloakrooms, but (laughs) this thing has very little to do with semiconductors. You're right, Larry. Again, I would emphasize probably $50 billion of the 250 on our side has something to do with more semiconductors. Um, and this is your message that you've always preached. It's the first time I've heard you is that the economy, the markets figure out the best way to allocate dollars. They're very much more efficient. You and I both have seen this in D.C. I've only been there for five years, but uh, we send our tax dollars to D.C. About 80 percent of it disappears. And then 20 percent of it goes back out to the communities. It's just not a very efficient way to do business. Um, there's other ways. We, if we need to incentivize some of these projects through tax incentives or, or uh, tax breaks, I understand that. But let's, let's, uh, let's kill this bill. It's just too much money, too much pork in it once again. Well, you know, you could do stuff like um, keep taxes and regulations low. I mean, you could make uh, the Trump tax cuts permanent, for example, slashing the corporate. You know, the only decent part of the economy right now is business investment 
which I think has something to do with the Trump tax cuts, which have not yet been repealed. Biden has failed to do that. We saved America and killed that bill. I think the bill's going to stay dead, build back better. I mean, those are the things. Incentives matter, Senator, right? I mean, not government spending and subsidies and corporate welfare, but, you know, let's have a level playing field and let's be a, um, let's be a hospitable home to investment. Yeah, Larry, the tax, the Trump tax cuts saved the average Kansas family $2,000 per family. The mm-hmm. Biden inflation tax is going to cost Kansans $5,000 per year per family. So it's a $7,000 flip, uh, what we're looking at right now. And what no one is talking about is regulation. People are asking, mm-hmm. why did the GDP flip this first quarter? And I think all this regulation that Joe Biden has instituted is now causing the the economy to begin, once again, very inefficient. What President Trump and your administration was able to do, uh, unwinding so much of the regu- many regulations, Joe Biden has now put all of those into place and more so in his first year. Uh, I think people underestimate the impact of regulations on American business. So the sort of begs the larger question, Senator Marshall. We've got to cut spending, freeze spending, not military spending, but domestic spending, which continues to skyrocket and is one of the principal sources of that $5,000 inflation tax you referred to a moment ago. I mean, it seems to me the GOP has to have a vision uh, to freeze spending, hold down taxes, uh, boost fossil fuels. I mean, Kansas is a very important uh, oil and gas producing state and the war against fossil fuels. Uh, I don't understand my friend Mitch McConnell, and I really like Mitch McConnell. I've known him, I don't know, close to 40 years. He doesn't seem to want to have a roadmap for what you all would do if you do take the Senate back. Uh, Rick Scott would like a roadmap. Newt Gingrich wants a roadmap. Kevin McCarthy wants a roadmap. I want a road. Not details necessarily, but I mean, wouldn't it be a good idea if the GOP says we're going to stop all this frivolous spending in order to hold down inflation, that we're going to freeze domestic spending, that we might actually be looking 10 or 15 years down the road at a balanced budget? Wouldn't it be good to, like, talk about those principles? Absolutely, Larry. But I don't think we can talk enough about what Joe Biden has done. That he's made our, uh, he's, that he's driven up inflation, he's ruined the economy, that our families are no longer safe and secure, he's taken away our God-given constitutional rights. But, but beyond that, of course, we do need a plan. And I think we talk about that every day on the, on the Senate floor and in our press conferences as well, that we do think that fiscal responsibility is part of the long-term solution. Um, so I, I hear exactly what you're saying uh, we've got to thread this needle pretty pretty good right right now, but I think we all understand that what this election about is Joe Biden's failures. No, I believe me, I understand that very much. Um, the, the Biden administration, the whole thing is a, is, is a is a board of misinformation. I I get that, and he's he's you know I mean it's just interesting to me. You look at his polls, uh, Senator. You, the country is essentially rejecting Bidenism. I mean, that's really, in that sense, 
I find some optimistic uh, solace. You follow me? I mean, if his polls were in the you know mid to high 50s or low 60s, I'd be very depressed. But his polls are in the low 30s. And that tells me that America rejects this big government socialism. Give you the last word. Yeah, Larry, you don't wonder, is this like people surrounding Putin or telling Putin what he wants to hear or people surrounding Joe Biden telling him everything is fine? Um, yeah. Look, this country, we're ready to turn things around. Uh, we're, we're done with Joe Biden. We're done with his policies. We're ready to move right. forward. We appreciate your leadership. Thank you, Senator Roger Marshall. Terrific stuff. Good luck, sir. Look forward to speaking to him. Folks, other side of the break, we're going to talk Pennsylvania Republican Senate candidate David McCormick, who's a foul of mine. I'm Kudlow. Please stay with us. It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. Great to be with you. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. And by the way, you can live stream us on the Internet. It's LarryKudlowShow.com. Be heard all across the country around the world, throughout the solar system. And uh, don't forget Fox Business News. The name of the show is Kudlow, 4 to 5 p.m. Eastern Time every day. And if uh, you can't, by some chance, you can't get to the show at 4 to 5 p.m., my suggestion is just call up your favorite nine-year-old who will teach you how to DVR the show. Now, back to business. We welcome back to the show my good friend, David McCormick, who is Republican candidate for the Senate in Pennsylvania. David's former CEO of a big investment firm. He's a Bronze Star recipient for his Gulf War service. He also is a former Undersecretary of the Treasury. Uh, Thank you, David. Hello. How are you? Hey, Larry. How are you? We're doing great. Um, I just want to float something real quick. I don't know if this has been an issue, but the great flap in Florida with uh, Walt Disney Corporation opposing the uh, parents' education bill that Ron DeSantis promoted. And uh, Disney uh, opposed that, defended gays, which really wasn't the issue. Don't say gay, that was never the issue. I'm just looking at a breaking news here. Disney has fired its PR person. It's fired its PR person. I'm not really sure that's going to solve all their problems. Uh, They lost their special tax status. As you know, Governor DeSantis piled right on. I think DeSantis is basically right. But he he has fired. On the other hand, the good news is he's fired it. The bad news is they've replaced it with a woman who helped sell Obamacare. (laughs) That's a bad sign, Larry. It's a bad sign. That's not a good leading indicator. Her name is uh, Christine Shockey, I think, if I'm saying it right. Uh, who will now lead the communications effort. Before Disney, uh, Shockey held roles leading uh, President Biden's uh, President Biden's COVID-19 vaccine education program and also worked for the Obama White House uh, selling Obamacare. So I don't know. <laughs> this is jumping from the, what, from the frying pan back into the fire. Anyway, I thought DeSantis was basically right to take on Disney head on, didn't you? I did. I, I absolutely did. And I think, uh, you know, I think what's happening there is just indicative of a much broader uh, sort of uh, trend towards wokeness within corporations. And it's also it's also an example of where this whole transgender ideology, particularly as it relates to kids, 
is becoming, I think, a big problem. And I think the governor uh, was right to take it on. I think Disney completely uh, misplayed how it handled it. And, uh, you know, this issue has come up in Pennsylvania a, a number of times. It's sort of the two issues you've raised because, um, you know, uh, my opponent in the campaign is uh, Mehmet Oz. And uh, he had been a, a really a, a big advocate. He had had a whole show in July of 2015, July 22nd, where he had the entire thing about transgender kids and transgender transitions for children, which, which as you know, are, uh, are decisions that can be made that are irreversible. And, um, and that's a big issue in Pennsylvania where people, people certainly don't want teachers involved in those decisions, and they want to be really be careful with kids who you know, aren't even old enough to, to, uh, you know, to figure out which shoes to wear to school, making irreversible decisions about their gender. So I think, um, I think this is a broader thing, and I think uh, Governor was right. I heard that, that you basically won the debate you just had. Yeah, I, I, I think I did well. And, uh, you know, listen, uh, debates are about contrast. And so I spent uh, my time in the debate talking about two things. I spent a lot of time talking about uh, the people of Pennsylvania and the, and the issues and how my background is a guy who you know, served in combat and uh, gone to West Point and then ran a business in Pennsylvania that created 600 jobs. I talked a lot about that and how that was relevant to the issues of the, of the day, which is, you know, better than anybody, Larry, are the economy and energy policy and the border and so forth. But then I spent time also – on, uh, on, on Mehmet Oz, and I essentially just had gone back through his 20 years of, of TV and radio person. He's a big media personality, as you know. And I couldn't find a single example of where he had advanced a conservative idea or a conservative cause. And instead, there was a whole history of him being someone that was pro-choice and not, uh, not, not in support of life, someone who had been for a series of, of gun restrictions and gun laws on his TV program and in his columns. Someone who had been anti-fracking uh, had advocated for a ban in Pennsylvania uh, consistent with what was done in New York, a ban on fracking. As you know, Larry, fracking is really absolutely critical to, to Pennsylvania. Been someone who had supported Obamacare. And so rather than, uh, rather than argue about it, I just kept going to the specific show. And I'd say, well, uh, Mehmet on uh, you know, October 13th, 2014, you advocated a ban on fracking. Can you tell us about that? And uh, and I think it was good because he didn't have good answers. And the reason he didn't have good answers was because he is a liberal and uh, had been a Hollywood liberal and uh, and has flip flopped on all these issues when he decided to run for the Senate. And I I ended uh, that with uh, by saying uh, you know unfortunately, Mehmet, the problem for you is that there's no miracle cure for flip flopping, which was. Uh, which was a, a good line that got a lot of people's attention. Yeah, I don't understand. My former boss, uh, Donald Trump, endorsed uh, Oz, but Oz is not a conservative. I mean, I think that's pretty much coming out, and I, I guess you're drawing this out time and time again. Um, you are a conservative. I mean, I'm going to give you the Kudlow conservative imprimatur. You are a conservative. <laughs> I mean, you're for There's lower taxes. Better. You're for lower regulations. I mean, how can Oz be opposed to fracking? at a moment when we absolutely need to return to the Trump policies of energy independence and um, developing more oil and gas to bring down gasoline prices. That's the part I didn't understand about President Trump. I didn't talk to the president about it. I let it go. I don't want to get involved in it. Uh, but I, you know, how are you dealing with the Trump endorsement? Well, as you know, Larry, I, I, um, 
I know uh, President Trump pretty well, and uh, I have a, I think I have a great relationship with him. And my my wife Dina, who's a who's a friend of yours, was his deputy national security advisor, served with you. So you know we are pro uh, President Trump, and and in particular we're pro his policies, which you were a big part of, the America First agenda, um, the economic policies, making permanent the the, the Trump tax cuts, the deregulation that uh, took place under the president's leadership. Uh, the energy, you know, not only independence, but dominance. And that's that's so important for our country, but it's it's also so important for Pennsylvania. That's really the key to Pennsylvania's economic future, because that fracking um, not only is a great economic boost, but it then leads to all sorts of, of other manufacturing jobs that come to Pennsylvania. I was just at the big cracker facility in Beaver County in Pennsylvania, 600 new jobs that are directly a result of the energy industry uh, in the plastics manufacturing uh, area. And then the border policies of President Trump, I mean, what we see on the border is an absolute uh, disaster, and it's really killing Pennsylvanians because of fentanyl abuse and the crime that's coming into our sanctuary cities. So I'm a big advocate of President Trump, and and for those reasons, Larry, President Trump is very popular in Pennsylvania. So uh, with his endorsement, um, what we see is that Mamadaz isn't popular. And I, my guess is, you know, they've had a long-standing relationship and uh, friendship, and I, I certainly respect that. But Mehmet Oz does not line up with the conservative values of Pennsylvanians, and I do. Um, I, I do for all the reasons you've said. Um, I, I grew up there, I worked there, I created jobs there, and I've been a conservative all my life. And that's why I've been, you know, proud not only to have your uh, uh, support, as you just said, but also, uh, you know, Bob Lighthizer, who is your good pal and mm-hmm. led the, 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 the Trump trade agenda. And Mike Pompeo was uh, in, he was in Pennsylvania uh, last week and did a, a big uh, event for me and has, has been a big supporter and a big, uh, a big endorser. And, and Mike Huckabee, who was here uh, yesterday. So I have a whole long list of conservatives, everybody from Brandon Judd, who's president of the border patrol to Rick Santorum as, you know, a great social conservative to a lot of senior leaders in the Trump administration who really led the Trump America First agenda. And uh, I'm proud, proud to have all that support. In the end, Pennsylvanians will decide who is best for Pennsylvania and best for America. And uh, I feel good about it. I feel like I need to just keep focusing on telling my story, making sure the contrast is clear. And uh, I think this will end up in a good place. You know, if I were President Trump, I wouldn't want to incur the wrath of one Dina Powell McCormick. Man, I wouldn't want to mess with that. Holy cow. <laughs> well, I, <laughs> she is a great la- She's a great lady. She's an old yeah, friend. Well. I mean, how can you go against Dina? Forget David McCormick. How can you go against Dina Powell McCormick? Can't do that. My Lord. Well, listen, When's uh, the- Dina, Dina, as you know, <laughs> Dina's, lived, Dina's lived the American dream, Larry. She's a, she's lived the American dream. I was proud to serve in in uh, in, in the White House, and uh, and uh, and I've been on her the bad side of her wrath before, so I certainly try to avoid that. And uh, you know, the great thing about Dina is she has uh, been nothing. I mean, you know, she uh, worked hard to convince me not to do this, but once we decided to do it, she has been an incredible partner in every way. Well, she's a great lady. When's the primary, David? Primary is May seventeenth. So we're going down the home stretch here. I'm in Chester County today. I just left Rams Diner, where we had a diner full of enthusiastic McCormick supporters, and I'm headed to a barbecue. 
uh, and then uh, later tonight uh, an event in Delaware County. So uh, it's uh, it's just full steam ahead every day, uh, working my way across Pennsylvania. There's it's, it's a big state, 67 counties, and uh, I've got about 20,000 miles on the pickup truck already, Larry. And uh, listen, there's still time left if you want to get if you want to get a spot here in the pickup truck for someday and meet Pennsylvanians. We can work you in. I'm gonna I would do it only if Dina. <laughs> Drives the pickup truck. That's the only way I would possibly do well, it. Well, you don't want to drive with her, Larry. <laughs> <laughs> All right, folks. This was David McCormick again. He's running for the Republican Senate nomination uh, in Pennsylvania. He is a genuine conservative. He is supportive of the Trump agenda. He is a Bronze Star recipient for his Gulf War service, a former Undersecretary of the Treasury, immensely qualified. Good luck in the primary, David. Come hard down Thank the home you. stretch. Thanks Thank for coming you, Larry. on the show. If, if, if your viewers, if your viewers or your listeners rather want to learn more about me, they can go to DaveMcCormickPA.com. And uh, I'm always grateful to have time with you. So thank you, sir. You bet. Anytime. All right, folks, I'm Larry Kudlow. We're going to take a quick break, and we're going to talk about the economy and the inflation rate with former CEA chairman Tom Phillipson. We'll be right back. I'm Kudlow. Hi, it's Ernie Anastas. You know, your thoughts can affect how you feel, and how you feel can impact your thoughts. Addressing your mind and body connection is the key to improving your overall wellness. Bergen Newbridge Medical Center is the largest hospital in New Jersey, providing comprehensive, equitable, compassionate, and high-quality emergency inpatient and outpatient medical care, plus mental health services and substance use disorder treatment. The Bergen Newbridge team can address your total health needs in one convenient location. Call 201 225 for an appointment or newbridgehealth.org. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Great pleasure to be with you, as always. So we had a report, a bunch of economic reports this week. One of them was on GDP, which fell, surprisingly, by 1.4%, although the number was stronger under the hood. But the biggest problem in that report was the inflation rate. The GDP deflator was up 8%, uh, higher than the prior quarter. In fact, the third quarter of last year was 5.9. The fourth quarter of last year was 7.1. And the first quarter of this year, 8.0. So obviously the trend line is all bad. And now the question is, will inflation continue What's the Fed going to do about it? And is this going to lead to a recession? Are we going from stagflation to recession at some point? Are we on the front end of recession? Well, my great friend Tom Phillipson, who's former chairman of the White House Council of Economic Advisors, he's now teaching school. He's a professor of public policy at the University of Chicago. Uh, Tomas, welcome. Good to be with you again, Larry. All right, buddy. Assess this GDP report, all right? Tell me what you're thinking here. How bad is the inflation? Uh, Is this stagflation? And is this going to lead to recession, let's say, next year? 
Well, I think, I mean, there was a couple of things. Obviously, the inventory and the trade deficit kind of dragged it down. But I also think that's kind of indicative of potentially the the policies that are in place. You're not building up inventory because you're not super excited about what's going to happen in the future. And also, Biden policies are many times just boosting up demand, domestic demand, and clamping down on domestic supply, which, you know, it's not the, the trade deficit is not solely due to that, but certainly partly due to that, <laughs> that we, you know, we want to buy more than we produce because Biden's policies are kind of like that. They're going after supply and they're boosting demand with all these transfers. So I think, you know, you know can, some, can of that, I, some of that was a hangover from, from Q4, but still, I think it's indicative. I, can I, that's a very interesting point. And, uh, I think there was so much overstimulus, Thomas. Uh, you know, going back to the $1.9 trillion Biden bill a year ago last March, and, you know, maybe the $900 billion bill in late December that uh, none of us really liked. You didn't like it. I didn't like it. Mnuchin didn't yeah. like it. None of us liked that bill, but it wound up going through. But the, the point here is an interesting point. One reason for the giant trade deficit is we overstimulated demand. I mean, in, in some sense, yeah. in, in a, you know what we did? We overstimulated demand to buy Chinese goods, which probably was <laughs> not the intention. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the COVID recession, it was a brief recession, but it was the first recession on record where we had disposable income, meaning your private income plus the transfer from the government, go up in a recession. That never happened before. Now it's tricking down, obviously, once we turn off the sort of the, the transfer machine coming out of COVID. But it, it was a unique recession in that the average person got richer in a recession uh, which do- hasn't happened before. And that's the, the demand stimulus that sort of made it go overboard. We wrote about this in the summer of 2020. It's actually started with CARES uh, and, and went on from there. But it was a very unique recession in that way. But if you look at, you know, it's, a, it's again kind of an indicative situation with, with Biden where we have enormous price increases and lackluster growth, even negative growth. Because when you clamp down on supply and raise demand, both of them presumably increase prices, especially if you have 40% growth in the monetary base, sort of boosting the demand. But when you increase demand and then crank down on supply, those are offsetting forces on output. So you're going to have lackluster growth. One is basically stimulating quantity and one is destimulating quantity if you go after supply. So it's, it's kind of I read this GDP report in that regard that it it, it was a sort of an extreme version with negative. But still, it's going to be that kind of pattern in the future because we still have, you know, an inflationary Fed with real rates being negative. Uh, and, and I think that pattern is going to continue. Like you said, it's accelerated the last four quarters. You know, I mentioned at the top of the show uh, in my riffs. This business about negative real interest rates, I mean, there's a lot of people on Wall Street, Thomas, who are saying, well, inflation has peaked and it's going to come down. But if you've got an 8% inflation rate and the Fed funds target rate is whatever it is, one quarter of 1%, I mean, you have to have a positive real rate 
to stop inflation. I mean, you've got to shrink the monetary base. You're right. You've got to slow down the money supply. But you got to have they're going to have to lift rates significantly more, aren't they? Yeah, no, it's cheap money for sure when real rates are negative, right? So if you have cheap or low borrowing costs, you know, that's a recipe for for a stimulant, not a, a break. And on the on the balance sheet coming off, you know the pace they're going at ninety five billion a month. It's going to take them four years to come down to pre pandemic levels. It's going to take them eight years to come down pre pre financial crisis level. And during those four and eight years, there's bound to be another quote unquote crisis that's going to make it inflate again. They're not going to get rid of this balance sheet at the rate they're going. So the likelihood is that the stagflation may lead to recession. Not this year so much, but next year, the year after? Yeah, I think, I mean, the policies they're putting in place is pretty much exactly the opposite of what we were doing. And Let I me, think you've kind of seen, seen the Tomas, results of that. stay with me. Stay with me through the break. i got to take a quick commercial break. Now I want to talk to you on the other side of the break. More about inflation and also forgiving student loans. Folks, I'm Larry Kudlow. Tomas Phillips will be right back with us. Please hang out. Much more to do. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. Great to be with you today. We're talking to Tomas Phillipson, former chairman of the White House Council of Economic Advisors during the Trump administration. He is now professor of public policy at the University of Chicago. Um, Tomas, uh, just to... um, to put a cap on this economic story, uh, I noticed in the income and spending report yesterday, real disposable income. So for our listeners, that's income, wages and salaries income, after inflation, after tax. Tomas, the point is uh, real disposable income keeps falling. I mean, wages are rising, but inflation is rising even more. And when you tack on tax hikes or tax increases, uh it seems like this is at some point going to bury the consumer, but I just want to get your take on it. It can't be a promising number. Yeah, no, it went up during uh, Trump, obviously, pre-COVID, but it has been falling. Uh, and, and people keep touting the wage gains, even though they're smaller than the inflation rate. So that's, you know, that's the crux of the problem. People can buy less stuff. Sooner or later, that's going to show up in less real GDP because real GDP is stuff, put it that way. So uh, I think, you know, that's where we're headed. I think this whole debacle is sort of an indication of, and I wrote a Wall Street Journal piece on this, on the Fed basically um, being unable, or policymakers, both Congress and the Fed, are unable to time the cycle. This is kind of a Groundhog Day for bad Keynesian policy in some sense, what we're experiencing right now. Because, you know, these are generalists in Congress and, and bureaucrats at the Fed. They have zero, not, they have very poor incentive to forecast the economy compared to private sector, you know, Wall Street firms, et cetera, who actually lose money if they're wrong. But Wall Street firms are horrible at forecasting <laughs> as well. <laughs> so basically, <laughs> so basically the, Keynesian view, the Keynesian view is that we should rely on the forecasting of these guys in government, even though the private guys can't get it right. And, and that's just been again and again a failure of timing the cycle. And this is just the latest example. And you have... 
You have these two-faced economists, I call them, who based, like Larry Summers, who say, we believe in Keynesian policy because we believe officials can time policy well. And then they go out and complain on the timing of official policy at the same time, which is what Larry's done, that they basically are, are stimulating too long. So I think, I, I mean, I think it's kind of a, an indication of, I mean, the piece I wrote was, you know, Keynesians run in circles on inflation. It's just an illogical kind of worldview where you believe government officials through Congress, general people who without economic expertise in Congress can time the cycle. Yeah, or the Fed with, with the Fed with price controls can time their price controls in credit markets to fix these problems with the cycle. I just, I think it's, you know, it's sort of, sort of the norm in Washington, but I think it's a very Ill, Ill, ill-guided it's norm. It's crazy stuff, not to speak of modern monetary theory. Anyway, Thomas, um, Joe Biden's looking at forgiving student loans, all right? Forgiving student loans. What do you make of that? Well, my view on this is that, you know, Democrats want public financing of political campaigns. And this is a version of it where you basically send people to colleges for free on tax dollars, and then they get trained to be Democrats, essentially. So... (laughs) Even at the University of Chicago? Yes, even at the University of Chicago. You would not believe the stuff that we're dealing with here. Uh, you know, Obama people run the Milton Friedman Center, by the way, so it's kind of indicative of how University of Chicago is going. But anyway, back to student loans. Good idea, bad idea, forgive them all. Yeah, no, I mean, you and I dealt with this when we were in, we're, we're in, we're in the White House. We have an enormous, this program was the problem we got with the student loan started with the public sector coming in, taking over the uh, over the uh, loan business. And when they do that, they don't have underwriting. They don't have any other practices to figure out whether you can pay back loans or not. And now we're about one and a half trillion in the hole. And then we go to taxpayers and say, yeah, we're in a bad government program lending to students, but can you bail us out? And I think, you know, it, it's a really bad situation, I think, in terms of the, the, both the incentive it, it generates because, you know, students presumably think that they have very low interest rates on these loans if they're for free. But if you really wanted to subsidize higher education, this is not the way to do it. The way to do it is up front as opposed to at the back end. Well, why should seventy uh, percent of the country finance thirty percent of these? You know, those who have student loans, and I, especially, you know, some of the biggest ticket items here are graduate students. Why does the country have to finance graduate students? Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, Milton Friedman famously claimed this is one of the most regressive programs we have in the government because it's basically a bunch of rich people getting a, a cheaper education relative to the taxpayer who is funding it. And and I think that's right. I mean, it's a very, very regressive program. And even the Brookings Institution comes out and says that this is going to be mostly benefiting the high-income individuals. And I think people are very upset with that uh, scenario where, you know, very rich kids get breaks on Ivy League schools. What's wrong with going back to private lenders making these loans 
I mean, the Obama administration stopped, you know, banks from making loans, and now it's all the government making loans. So to your point about, you know, creditworthiness and taking a look at their ability to pay, that's all out the window. Why not go back to private lending? Yeah, no, I think, I mean, if you want to subsidize higher education, that's one thing. But, you know, you can do that in various ways. This is a very indirect way of doing it. But, yes, when... You have private lenders, they care whether you're going to be able to pay back the loan or not. And you're going to have strict underwriting measures, which the government basically abandoned. And surprise, surprise, they're in the red, about one and a half trillion from not having underwriting of their borrowers. And I think that's kind of econ 101, how credit markets would work. But I think that's not viewed as a drawback of the program from the Democrats. That's a benefit of the program for them because they want to just subsidize higher education, given that that's how you get trained to vote for the party. All right. Tomas Phillipson, University of Chicago, former CEA chair during the Trump years. Thanks ever so much, Tomas. We will talk soon. Folks, I'm Larry Cudlow. We're going to take a quick break. And on the other side, we've got Chad Wolf, who was Secretary of Homeland Security during the Trump administration, and he will tell us a thing or two about this misinformation governance board. And by the way, what should DHS do? How about protecting our border for a change? Anyway, we'll be right back. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. All right, welcome back, folks. So we've got Chad Wolf, who was former Secretary of Homeland Security during the Trump administration. He is now with the American America First uh, Policy Initiative. He's the executive director of the Center for Homeland Security and Immigration. And Chad, welcome. Thank you for doing this, and thank you for having some patience. We had to give uh, Tomas Phillipson, our friend, a little bit more time. But Chad, look, Disinformation Governance Board stuck in the office of the Secretary of uh, Homeland Security. Um, th- this is just nutty stuff. You're a former secretary of DHS. What do you make of this? Well, thanks for having me on, Larry. This, this is such a bad idea. I'm not even sure where to begin. So uh, it's very, very dangerous when you have a department like the Department of Homeland Security who is now looking at disinformation when we talk about domestic speech. It's okay, and I think it's appropriate in some senses to look at foreign influence uh, in elections and things like that. So when we talk about misinformation, we talk about foreign influence information, misinformation. But trying to label something truthful or not truthful from a domestic standpoint is very, very dangerous. We have First Amendment rights here, uh, and it's something that the country is built on. And so when you have a, a you know a department like this that we have already seen is not following the rule of law when it comes to border security, now trying to take this on, I think a lot of people are shaking their heads and saying this is just a really, really bad idea because you don't know where it's going to go at the end of the day, and it's a slippery slope. This is not a board that has been authorized by Congress. This is not a board that will have intense oversight by Congress. So I think it's a it's a bad, um, bad, bad suggestion all around. You know, I quoted you last night. We had John Ratcliffe on talking about this, and I quoted you um, in our brief conversation before the show. Uh, Madam Saki is saying that the Trump administration had the same thing. Now, before you answer that, I want to just say Radcliffe, who's a very clever guy, he looks and he says, well, think of it this way. 
if the Trump administration had a ministry of truth, do you think anybody would have written about it? Yeah, right. (laughs) Which is very amusing. But the fact is, um, this is something new and different. This was not something that you had when you were secretary of DHS. No, not at all. I mean, we had our, our cybersecurity and infrastructure security agency, or what we call CISA, now, they were looking at, at you know, Russian influence in our elections or our, our Iranian influence in our elections. And so that was some misinformation issues that they were dealing with. But it was very, very specific, and it was within the, the authorities of that specific agency given it to by, by Congress, which is very, very completely different than a disinformation governance board that's in the secretary's office that looks at anything and everything under the sun. And so I just – it continues to be a bad idea. Obviously, the White House and Jim Psaki, should, they're not being truthful, but that's not new. They haven't been truthful regarding DHS issues and the border and everything else for, for over 14 months now. So I think that, you know, depending on what she says, I think most people discount that. I mean, one of the things, one of the worst parts of this, Chad, is that when Mayorkas was testifying, he did refer to domestic elections and he also used domestic education which to me is a tip-off that this is going to be suppression of free speech and it's going to be suppression of conservative free speech. Well, I think that's the concern. I think anytime you hear the secretary or others talk, right, they do everything they can to not talk about the border, to not talk about the actual threats facing America. And they want to keep continuing to talk about domestic terrorism and white supremacy and now a board of disinformation. It's almost like a little bit like smoke and mirrors. Um, that's not where their focus needs to be today. Their focus needs to be on solving that issue down at the border. But, but if you really want to talk about disinformation, um, you know, they haven't allowed Border Patrol agents to talk freely with the press since they have taken over. That's disinformation. and That's misinformation. You know, I, I believe it was Fox News that had a drone up over the Del Rio Bridge several, several months ago when there were 20,000 migrants under the bridge. And this administration used the FAA to bring down that drone to say the drone could not operate over that bridge for safety mm-hmm. reasons. So I think when we talk about misinformation or disinformation, I think the track record of this administration gives people a lot of pause and concern. I mean, to me, Chad Wolf, to me, Mr. Malarcus ought to focus on his job, which right now is principally the catastrophe at the border, all right? Instead of worrying about misinformation in school boards and so forth and so on, or elections, or you know, hiring this woman that said Hunter Biden's laptop was misinformation, how about the border catastrophe? Yeah, well, it, it, it's something that's been going on now for 14 uh, months. And I'm, you know, there's a number of Democrats who are now kind of waking up to it or who very much opposed of removing this Title 42 authority. Uh, I would say to them, where have you been for the past 14 months? It seems like they're only caring as as maybe midterms get a little bit closer. But this crisis isn't going away. And in fact, it's getting worse. And the secretary was on the Hill. He had a number of hearings last week, and he's got a couple more this coming week. And he's having to answer some very, very difficult questions, which is, how is it in the best interest of Americans to have the border situation, have this crisis going on month after month after month? Tell me one good thing that comes to U.S. US citizens from having this border crisis continue to extend. And he couldn't, obviously, he couldn't answer that question. And so that's very concerning. What happens with Title 42? What happened? They're going to take it away 
I mean, unless there's some amendment to the COVID bill or something. But I mean, I, I think by the, what, the next three weeks, it's going to evaporate. Um, what do you think the chances are that something could be done to either stop it or, Chad, you know, uh, Bill Haggerty, Senator Haggerty has an idea. So if you if you think COVID is over, COVID emergency is over, and you don't need Title 42, why not translate that into a fentanyl prevention Title 42, which would at least give us, you know, some continuing help on the border? Well, there needs to be help on the border regardless. So, you know, Title 42, public health emergency, it was always going to expire at some point. I'm not for it expiring now, but I think you can reasonably say it will go away at some point. So there's a couple of different things. There's one, the Mayorka, Secretary Mayorka should be doing his job, which is to say, if we remove Title 42, then let's put other procedures and policies in place under our authorities to do this. It's exactly what we did under the Trump administration prior to 40, pri, title, prior to Title 42. We had things like the Remain in Mexico program. We had the asylum cooperative agreements with Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador. And we had other programs that were more working, that keeping that border in check. Now, he's done away with all of those, and now they want to do away with Title 42. So you have to do something uh, to bring deterrence back into that into that border uh, regime, and they're not doing that. So I think most people look at Title 42 and say, this is the last thing that's there. It's the last thing that's keeping that border in check. Now, what congressional, you know, congressional folks can do can say, let's take that Title 42 authority and actually transfer it from the Department of Health and Human Services – and let's move that type of authority back under the, the INA, which is the law that governs immigration, and give some authority to, to DHS to actually do this on a day-to-day basis, whether it's for fentanyl or whether it's for COVID or for a variety of other reasons. Should the illegal apprehensions per day reach a certain number, then certain extraordinary measures should be able to take place. We're talking to uh, Chad Wolf, who was formerly Secretary of the Department of Homeland Security in the Trump administration. He's now with the America First Policy Institute. I mean, Chad, what about some of the basic Trump initiatives? You know, what about Remain in Mexico? What about building the wall? Well, absolutely. They should be doing all of the above. All of the above. Uh, you know, they're in court fighting on, on instituting the Remain in Mexico, even though a court has told them uh, they need to, to do it. Uh, I think they're at the Supreme Court arguing that. All these initiatives that we've been saying for 14 months, they need to reinstitute. They need to start working on them. They're not doing any of them. Instead, the secretary rolls out a six-point plan two days before he testifies to say, here's what we're doing to get this border under control, of which none of it was new. None, no new authorities, no new initiatives, no new programs. These were things that they should have been doing on day one. It's, it's things that we did throughout the Trump administration, uh, but it's not enough. It's not enough when you are at a historic place as far as illegal apprehensions and fentanyl and human trafficking. It's not enough just to do what what you've been doing for the last 10 or 15 years. You have to take some very aggressive measures. And that's that comes with Larry, you know, that comes with leadership and it comes with will. And I I don't see either one of those from this administration. I mean, basically, Chad, the Bidens have a policy of open borders. I mean, that's just, to me, the long and short of it. And this chap, Mayorkas, I I don't know him. It's not personal. But I don't see him disagreeing with that policy of open borders. I mean, I tell you what, let's circle back. 
of his, what did you say? He had six ideas, six, uh, six points. What, what was in that package that would be helpful or new? Well, it's nothing. Nothing's new, right? There are things in there like uh, work with Central American countries um, to improve their conditions so that their citizens don't leave for the U.S. Well, that's great. That's, that's a decade. That's two decades, maybe even a 30-year plan. That's not going to happen overnight. And the other things he said is let's move people down to the border so we can process these immigrants faster, which is exactly the wrong approach. You don't want to process them faster because that's going to send a demand signal that more and more can come because they're going to get processed into the country quicker. You're not solving the problem. You're not solving the problem. You've got to solve the problem. Um, and so I think they have a different outlook. They have a different view. Um, and then what's you know also concerning is they're not being straight with the American people. You know, when he's testifying as, you know, a couple of days ago, he says the border is secure uh, and they have operational control over the border, which is a, it's nonsense. And I think most Americans would say it's nonsense when you have, you know, in, in, in 2021 alone, you had 500,000 folks cross that border that were never, never came into contact with Border Patrol. That is not operational security. Chad, um, what about this business of sending illegals all around the country, you know, flying them in in the dead of night? Uh, most cases, the local uh, officials don't even know they're coming until the last minute. Uh, did, was any, did the Trump administration ever did any of that? I was not aware of it. So we did utilize aircraft, but we did it for a very, very different reason. So we flew uh, individuals that we apprehended along that border to different parts of the country, but we did it for a very specific reason, which was to uh, detain them, right? We ran out of beds. We ran out of facilities along the border. So you had to find facilities elsewhere. And so you would fly them, you would detain them for a certain period of time. But the end goal was always to remove them. In order to remove an individual, you have to detain them because it takes several days to remove them. And so you have to detain them. You have to keep them because if you release them, the studies and the data will show that you, they, they will not show back up for a, a court proceeding or to check in at their, at their local ICE office. And so the Biden administration is also flying them around the country, but with a singular purpose, and that is to release them wherever they get to their destination. It's not to detain them. And so it's mm. two very, very different reasons. Yes, we both utilize aircraft to move migrants around the country, but for two totally different yeah. reasons and outcomes. And, got it. And um, more and more reports, Chad Wolf, that illegals coming across the border, some of them, more and more of them, have terrorist backgrounds. Can you speak to that? Yeah, I think that's a number that, again, the DHS put out, again, about a day before their congressional hearings, trying to deflect some of the uh, the attention. And it, it came to light in 2021, 42 individuals, what we call KSTs, known or suspected terrorists, mm. four individuals on the on the terrorist watch list were apprehended on that southern border. And so this idea that there's not national security threats. Uh, that there are not public safety threats along that border is nonsense. And the administration does not want to talk about it uh, at all. And so you have to think if there are 42 known or suspected terrorists apprehended, when very few Border Patrol agents are on that border, how many are how many get through? And that's the concerning wow. part. Chad Wolf, thank you very much. Department, former Secretary of Homeland Security, now with the America First Policy Institute. Terrific stuff, Chad. We will talk soon. Folks, we're going to take a quick break. 
And the other side, we're going to do some stock market work. It's a little bit grim right now, so we'll get what our experts are telling us. How can you make a buck? I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. Great to be with you, as always. You can, by the way, live stream us on the Internet, LarryKudlowShow.com. You can hear us throughout the country, around the world, throughout the solar system, throughout the Milky Way. I don't know what the Milky Way is, but you can hear us out there. And during the week, Fox Business, the name of the show is Kudlow, 4 to 5 p.m., Monday through Friday. And if you can't see it, you can DVR it. But the way to DVR it is just dial up your favorite nine-year-old who will teach you how to DVR the show, and you'll never miss a thing. And boy, this was a one heck of a week in the stock market. Our guests have their work cut out for it. Yesterday, the Dow was off 939 points. That is not good. For the week, it was off 2.5%. The NASDAQ was off 4%. The S&P 500 was off over 3%. So let us go to our guests and see what they have to say. One of my favorite optimists in the entire world, Stephanie Link, <laughs> Chief Investment Strategist, Hightower Advisors, Head of Investment Solutions. There is no better... No better optimist than my pal, Stephanie Lincoln. And Joe Lavornia. Joe Lavornia is really a good guy, but he has kind of a dour outlook on the world right now. Joe Lavornia, by the way, is uh, formerly the chief economist of the White House National Economic Council, where he worked for an enlightened boss. And he is presently chief economist at the Natixis Bank. So, kids, you know... The, Broad averages look bad, but I just want to read a couple other things that are concerning to me. I mean, look, I like to be optimistic, too, and I'm still going to say stocks for the long run. But, uh, Stephanie, I guess I'll direct this at you. The, the SOX index, the chip index down 26% year-to-date, the S&P 500 home builders down 32% year-to-date, the S&P 500 retailers down 22.6% year-to-date. I mean, that's uh, rough numbers in addition to the overall uh, aggregate numbers. So, Steph Love, what do you make of this story? What do you make of it? Well, Larry, and it's great to be with you and Joe. Thank you for having me. I think that we have said, and I have said on, on your show a couple times this year, that this year is much harder, and it was going to be much harder than the last several years because we have to deal with inflation. We have to deal with the Fed being behind the curve. We also, by the way, have a war that no one has any idea how it's going to turn out. And those uncertainties have led to multiple contraction this year. So we started the year at 21.6 times the earnings, uh, price to earnings uh, for the S&P 500. We are now at about 18 times. Can we go lower? Of course we can. The average is anywhere between 15 to 17 times, depending on interest rates. So um, I think that we're in this chop, but let's not forget. So I'm going to wear this, um, my glass half full for half of a minute, 
But let's not forget the last three years, on average, we had a compound annual growth rate, total return for the S&P 500 of 28%. So we had a very good time of it the last three years. Why? Because the Fed was on our side, because the economy was rebounding from being totally shut down, and it worked. All of the stimulus, though, however, fiscal and monetary, has led to inflation. And unfortunately, the Fed didn't recognize it when they should have a year ago. So now we're in this chop. And there are certain sectors that are doing worse, the ones you mentioned, for sure. Uh, and this year, I think it's more prudent to own more of a balanced portfolio. You know I have been – I was all over cyclicals last year. In fact, the last two years. This year, I think it's a balance between some cyclical companies and, because of their valuations are so attractive and then some defensive names, some quality, uh, profitable companies, good balance sheet kinds of companies. So quite frankly, this year is the year to be not over your skis in terms of overweight or underweight large sector bets. Yeah, you know, that's um, that's very good. I'm looking again, the one sector consumer staples are actually slightly positive. Uh, They're up a little less than one percent, but they are up. Um, let me see. Uh, yeah, everything else is down except energy, of course. Now, but energy is a bit of an outlier uh, because of the war and also bad policies and so forth. But you're right. I mean, you've had uh, a great run, and now, as you say, we got a chop in here. I mean, I still think stocks for the long run, but I think it's going to be pretty bumpy now. Um, California. Question for you. Stephanie mentioned the drop in in the multiples from 26 times to 18 times. Um, A lot of that is going to be interest rates, Joe. And you've had a huge increase uh, in the 10-year, for example, which is now just slightly south of 3%. I doubt very much if that's peaked. I doubt very much if that's peaked. If you tell me you think that's peaked, I don't know. Maybe you could make a case for it, but I don't see. But the other thing that's concerning is all these rates, Joe, are still well negative with respect to uh, inflation. Inflation is much higher than all these interest rates. And that is a bad position uh, for interest rates to be in, which is why I think Stephanie's multiples analysis becomes even more important. We may have an additional contraction of multiples because nominal rates are going to have to go up. Larry, you know I love both of you guys, but I completely agree. <laughs> disagree, rather, with the assessment. Uh, and you know I love both of you. You and Stephanie are the, are the best of the best. I was a former optimist and will become one at some point. On the multiple story. On the, <laughs> I gave on you the, a really uh, bad lead in, too. <laughs> I gave you a bad lead. i got to address so many things. I don't even know where to begin. There's so many things I need to correct. The, uh, on the, <laughs> okay, that's it. Uh, on the equity side, uh, the vast majority of the return uh, the last three years has been multiple expansion. And Stephanie's exactly right. The Fed has had the market um, – you know, the market, the, the Fed was at the market's back. The problem I see it is several fold. Number one, potential GDP growth is, is a problem. It's much weaker. The economy doesn't have any supply side dynamism. The bond market reflects that. If you look at five year, five year inflation swaps, um, they're actually still quite low. They're lower than where they were when we came out of the crisis. So the market's basically saying five years from now, your core headline PC is going to be slightly above 2%. The flatness of the yield curve tells me the economy is going to slow quite dramatically. As you know, Larry, I was very negative on the first quarter, thought it could be negative. It was. 
who knows, maybe we're negative this quarter. It's certainly possible. But what we're getting is a massive demand destruction coming from surging food and energy costs. If the war in the Ukraine has some sort of diplomatic solution, comes to an end short term, that would be in the short term, that'd be great. I'd make me very bullish on equities. But right now, we've yet to feel that full effect of the food and energy price rise. Number two, the backup in rates is is significant, as you mentioned, but the backup in mortgage rates has been even more pronounced. We've had the biggest Mm -hmm. backup in mortgage rates since 94, because not only has a 10-year note risen, which has pushed up mortgage rates, but the Treasury mortgage basis spread has widened because the Fed is going to unwind its mortgage securities, maybe even sell them. We've yet to feel the hit from that. So we've yet to feel the full hit from food and energy. We've yet to feel the full hit from the rise in rates. And the Fed is going to tighten more. And therefore, to be upbeat in the next couple of quarters, to me, is is not very prudent. Mm -hmm. If, however, as I mentioned, Ukraine or the administration changes energy policy, which is integral because everything relies on energy, of course, that's not going to happen, that would make me bullish. So if the policy changes, Larry, I'd be bullish. But until the Fed relents and pauses on this tightening path, which will put us into a recession by year end, I'm very negative on risk assets. And I'm watching, in particular, credit spreads, a single, double B, and triple C credit. We have started to widen a bit. It's not where it was earlier in the year, but that's something to watch. If those spreads widen sharply, that's a real, real bad sign for stocks. So, so, yeah, that's so actually, so both actually, we all agree. I mean, short run, not good. Mm-hmm. That's all. That's what you're short saying. Run, short good. run, not that's good. That's right. That's exactly I mean, right. You kind of have to, Steph, you go through, look, we've been through plenty of these periods. We've all been around the block. You kind of have to put your shoulder into it and go through it, all right? It's not going to last forever. I mean, first of all, the cavalry's coming. You're going to get a big change in Congress uh, come November. It's better to have the White House, but it's not nothing to have the Congress. So the worst stuff, you know, like big tax increases or big inflationary spending increases will not happen. All right. Mm-hmm. We, you know, we save America, kill the bill. The build back better is dead. I, I don't care. You know, you get these liberal papers or liberal websites or whatever. They think they're going to get it through. They're not going to get it through. So, you know, that it, it may not be any worse. But I just think um, the interest rate, interest bond markets, Steph, seem to me they're in a, in a transitory period. They, As you said, the stock market was backed up by the Fed. Well, the bond market was backed up by the Fed because they're buying all those treasuries and mortgage backs. And that is slowly going to come to an end. It probably will take a couple of years. Tomas Philipson, former CEA chair, Joe, you know him well. Steph, you probably don't know him, but he's a very bright guy from Chicago University. He was a CEA chair. He figures it may take the Fed as much as four years to unwind their balance sheet. So the bond market, yeah, so I don't know whether that's right or wrong. Um, Let's say two years. I would say that means the bond market is going to be on tenterhooks for next couple of years. I mean, I just think that's a reality. Larry, I think people forgot you could lose money in bonds. I really do. Um, I know my, I know I talked to a lot of my advisors at, at Hightower and they are, not as surprised on the equity side because they understand that, that the equities are volatile and there's a lot going on to get through. And we talked about multiple contraction in the face of, by the way, better than expected earnings. And I know you are a big earnings and profit follower. 
earnings mm-hmm. actually are going a little bit higher. Not a lot, but a little bit higher. We're on track to do, in the first quarter, earnings of 12.5% year over year. That's pretty respectable, right? Mm-hmm. But it's not just about that. And, and, and so I think the multiple contraction advisors and people understand that because there are all these uncertainties. On the fixed income side, they're very surprised. Now, I would just like just go back to one, one thing about the economy. I don't think we're going to be in a recession this year. 2023 is another situation altogether because we have to see what the Fed actually does do. But why I am a little bit more optimistic about this year is because if you look at the GDP number, I know the headline was negative 1.4%, and I know it's down from 6.9% in the fourth quarter. But a lot of that was impacted by inventories and net exports. If you look at the consumer, and this is the, this is the punchline, the consumer uh, was up 2.7% in the GDP report, and the services consumption was up 4.3%. So you're seeing a transition from goods into services. Why do we care about services? You and Joe know this very well. It's 70% of U.S. consumption. In addition, business investment was the highest level since uh, the second quarter 2021. So I think that there is some momentum in the economy still in the face of inflation, in the face of um, of, of the Fed. Eventually, it's going to run out. I get it. And we'll have to see what 2023 brings. But I think 2022 is going to be a little bit better on the overall growth rate. And I I am not expecting inflation to come down substantially. But I think if we're kind of like peakish here, then and we can see some supply chain fixes coming down the pike. Maybe it's not as draconian as we think. We're going to take a break, but I want to underscore your point. C plus I, consumption plus investment, which is really core GDP, private domestic final sales. We're up 3.7% at an annual rate. And that was stronger than Q4, which was 2.6. And that was stronger than Q3, which was 1.4. So actually, the underlying core part of the economy, and I think, by the way, The strong numbers for business investment and business equipment have a lot to do with the Trump tax cuts. The corporate tax cuts are still in place, and companies are making use of them. They're making use of the depreciation acceleration, and they're making use of the low rates. Biden wanted to overturn them, but he failed, and they're not going to overturn it. So you got a point there. You got a point. I mean, I think that's an important point, and I think earnings, uh, you know, profits of the mother's milk of stocks. But earnings are holding up, so I don't think you got a recession. But I do think you got a, a stagflation threat. Anyway, let's take a quick break. We've got Stephanie Link, Chief Investment Strategist at Hightower Advisors, Head of Investment Solutions, and Joe Lavornia, Chief Economist at Natixis Bank. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. Now, back to The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. We're talking stock markets with Stephanie Link. Chief Investment Strategist of Hightower Advisors and Head of Investment Solutions, and Joe Lavornia, former Chief Economist at the White House National Economic Council during the Trump administration, and presently Chief Economist at Natixis uh, Bank. Joe, uh, what is the Fed going to do this week? Larry, they're going to go 50 and announce the uh, the balance sheet unwind as well in May. Um, and, and, you know, in terms of what the they're they're forecasting what the market's expecting. You know, beyond the 50 this week, the, the market expects them to tighten a full 300 by next March, which would put it in line with where we were in 94. 
and also unwind the balance sheet by upwards of, let's say, 900 so billion, that's worth at least another 50, maybe 75 basis points in rate hikes. So the market and the Fed are basically telling us they're going to do more than what they did in 94, substantially more. And what's more important is that in 94, the economy grew at over 4%. It was accelerating from 93. This economy is decelerating. And while you're absolutely correct, the C in the I, the consumption and the investment look very solid. I'm going to tell you that that was basically all driven by, by imports. GDP is a measure of domestic production. We see from industrial production use from the Fed. We see from the production series from the ISM production is rapidly slowing. And again, Larry, I just want to highlight the fact that the tightening we're getting uh, from the interest rates and the shock on food and energy uh, has yet to fully bite the consumer, which is why consumer sentiment, consumer expectations, a leading indicator of activity, are at recession readings. And that's a problem for me. And while 22 might be bumpy, if we think there's a recession coming even as early as 23, that should caution investors not to take a whole lot of risk and maybe even buy the long bond, which, by the way, Larry, through this point in this year, the return on the long bond is the worst in the history of data going all the way back to 1928. Yeah, well, <clears throat> buying the long bond would not be my favorite strategy. But Stephanie Link, um, you're not going to have a recession until profits start coming down. Mm-hmm. And I would I would add to this, we only have a, about two minutes left, but I would add to that, Stephanie, there's no inverted curve, uh, you know, from three-month bills to 10 years. So the recession call is still out there. So be defensive. Help people get through the next year. What would you say? Yeah, I mean, I I really think that you want to have a barbell approach, right? Mm. You You do want to own some quality, big profit companies, big balance sheets, free cash flow. That is really something that's very, very important. That that does include technology, even though technology's gotten hit very hard, but that includes technology, that includes healthcare. But at the same time, Larry, I am not ca- calling for a recession this year. I'm not even sure about next year. There's so much time between now and then, and I know we only have a little bit of time, but I still think you want to have some exposure to energy, to materials, Mm-hmm. I, and I'm less optimistic about industrials. And you know I've liked industrials for years, but they are not putting up the profits that are able to propel their stocks right. higher or their earnings because they need we'll pricing power and so many of them don't. Good advice, Stephanie Link. Nice try, Joe Lavornia. Very good. Appreciate it, both of you. We'll talk soon. Folks, we're going to have money in politics on the other side of the break with Monica Crowley and Steve Moore. You don't want to miss it. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. From Wall Street to the White House, this is the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks, from Larry Kudlow. By the way, join us during the week, Fox Business. Name the show's Kudlow, 4 to 5 p.m. And you will see Monica Crowley, former Assistant Secretary of the Treasury, and the Monica Crowley Podcast. How's that going, Monica, that podcast? Hey, Larry, thank you for having me. It is going gangbusters, and I cannot wait to have you and Steve Moore on my podcast. <laughs> we accept. And Steve Moore, you see Steve Moore, who's a vice president of FreedomWorks, Committee to Unleash Prosperity, the author of Gobzilla. Uh, welcome back, kids. So 
Disinformation Governance Board. <laughs> Disinformation Governance Board. The Ministry of Truth. All right. George, George Orwell wrote about this in the mid-1940s with his books Animal Farm and... Um, 1984, I guess that was the other one. Anyway, Monica, in brief, <laughs> what do you make of the Disinformation Governance Board? Well, you know, I mentioned this on my podcast the other day, Larry. A couple of years ago, I went back and I reread Animal Farm 1984 <laughs> and Brave New World. Uh, because I thought that was an important one to read, too. And I thought, well, we better be prepared because it sounds like this stuff might be coming down the pike. And here we are. It's terrifying. I encourage everybody to go back and read those three novels because it's now become real life. Um, look, it, it's sort of easy to poke fun at this new minister of truth because apparently she is a frustrated American Idol contestant filthing <laughs> out so soon. Oh, uh, we are. <laughs> yeah, I know we all are. Uh, but we're now this, this woman was clearly a lunatic uh, and clearly on the radical left and clearly a communist is now sitting atop this this new governance board that's going to determine what can be said, can determine what the flow of information is going to be to the rest of us. And she is housed in the Department of Homeland Security, which make the, makes this exceedingly dangerous because that is one of very few government agencies that actually possesses and controls weapons and ammunition. So when you combine this kind of government censorship with the Department of Homeland Security, whose task it is to make sure that the homeland is safe from from enemies, foreign and domestic, and has the weapons to do that, that takes us to a whole other level, Larry. But by, by the way, it's an interesting point. Um, I was having dinner. This is several years ago with um, with General John Kelly, former Chief of Staff John Kelly, who was a great friend. Uh, I didn't know this, but the Department of Homeland Security has the largest police force in America, roughly 65,000 law enforcement officers. He asked me which is the largest one, and I said the New York Police Department, which has at the time about 40,000, but no, Homeland Security. Um, Steve Moore, one of the things, look, at I had Chad Wolf on earlier in the show. He was former secretary of DHS in the Trump years. And Chad made this important distinction. The Department of Homeland Security, it's okay to monitor foreign misinformation, particularly when it comes to no, cyber, right. cyber hacking. Right. But it's not okay, not okay and unconstitutional to monitor domestic uh, so-called misinformation. And this guy, Mayorka, Steve, talked about elections and education, which I thought were real tip-offs that this was going to suppress conservative speech. Yeah, well, by the way, I think I can outdo Monica because I actually went back and read the 1,200-page Atlas Shrugged. <laughs> so, <and that laughs> wow. Made wow. I, I'm actually, I did not actually go back and read it, but I did go read back some passages, and it really is amazing because, of course, that was a satire of what would happen, you know, when the economy collapsed and uh, everything became mayhem. And that's kind of what we have right now. By the way, I think this might have been uh, – uh, Joe Biden's worst week in office. Um, mm -hmm. Although, it's, you know, I, I, but in any case, 
Um, you make a really important distinction there, uh, and Chad does too, about um, if this is about the government spying on us, right? right. Not on right. not on foreign agents, on us, on what we do. And by the way, what is misinformation? Was was the uh, Russian hoax? Was that misinformation? Was Hunter were Biden, Hunter Biden's emails misinformation? I mean, what what one day is is uh, is um, labeled misinformation? Uh, another day turns out to be the truth. So this is this is a very worrisome thing. And look, I'm a libertarian. I don't want the government spying on me. But Steve, to your point, this is uh, Biden's worst week or one of his worst weeks. Step back for a minute from the various free speech, First Amendment, constitutional issues. Step back from that. It just seems to me, Steve, this is another major political blunder by Biden, okay? Because everyone is beating up on this or making fun of it, uh, and this woman is a nut job and so forth. But really, this just is another major political blunder that's burying his administration. Yeah, you know, uh, remember that on Saturday Night Live they had the not ready for time prime time players. <laughs> That's what we <laughs> yes. have in the White House yes. right now. The, the not ready for prime time players, and obviously all of this is is uh, I don't think this is coming from Biden. I think it's coming from his uh, genius staff. And, and by the way, when you say this was one of his blunders, I think the biggest blunder of all, maybe even bigger than this, was this crazy lunatic idea of spending $1.5 trillion to bail out student loans. I can't, yes. I said this on your show, you know, you know my wife, Ann, and, and you know, she's a very nice person, but she does have a temper. And when she heard about this <laughs> idea, she paid, look, she paid back her student loans. She went to UCLA when she graduated, you know, she diligently, like a stand-up person does, she, she took money out of her pay, meager paycheck and she paid back that loan. And she's screaming at me. She's like, now Joe Biden wants to tax me so I can pay for other people's student loans who didn't pay it back? What is the number 60% of the delinquent loans are people with, uh, with graduate degrees? Come on. Mm-hmm. Well, the headline uh, opinion piece in the Wall Street Journal, their top editorial today, is called The uh-huh. Taxpayer Con of the Century, Monica. The yep. Taxpayer Con of the Century. And the subheader is writing off student loan debt is a wealth transfer to the affluent and academia. And I would add, Monica, this is a cheap attempt to buy votes among young people because Biden is losing support among young people. Yes, of course, this will be economically catastrophic, as Stephen, you have pointed out on this. This is something that we cannot afford to do economically. But then there is the moral issue of this. This is a giant, you know, screw you to the over 50 percent. Actually, I think it's over 60 percent of the American people who do not hold college degrees. So the government is giving a giant handout to the affluent and those who are college educated um, to wiping out their debt, while the rest of of the folks are sitting there saying, well, uh, what about me? How is this fair to me? So this is a giant economic hazard. It's a giant moral hazard. But to your point, Larry, I think that this is one of the most underreported stories uh, in America. The hemorrhaging away from the Democratic Party of all of their core constituencies, African-Americans, Latinos, women and younger voters. They are moving away from the Democratic Party in droves. And, of course, the press doesn't want to report this 
because it makes the Democrats look bad, and it's a giant signal of the kind of uh, political devastation they're going to sustain in November, and then in 24 and beyond, because this is such a sea change. But they are trying to try to get those young people back and motivated in an off-year election this year with this huge kind of giveaway. The progressives like Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, they have been pressing this for a long time. So this is another thing that Biden feels like, okay, I can keep the, the far left off my back if I go ahead and do this. Plus, we might get some younger voters to come back into the fold. I don't think it's going to work. Um, and I, you know, there's only so much he can do via um, executive order on this. But I think he's going to move ahead and it's going to make what the current inflationary environment is. It's going to make it so much worse if the government then pumps in another one, one point five trillion dollars to wipe away this debt. By the way, uh, before we take a break, I don't know if either of you saw the Elon Musk uh, tweet of his political (laughs) movement where he starts out in 2008, (laughs) where he's left of center and then by 2012, he's center. And then by today, he's well right of center, which sort of encapsulates what Monica's saying. I mean, Biden's losing every constituency. That's what's happening yeah. here. There's almost yeah, going to be way, nobody... Larry, do, you, do you remember what Ronald Reagan used to say? I didn't leave my party. My party left me. Right. He was a Democrat, remember? Yes. And he said, the Democratic Party left me. I think that those are the people Monica is talking about, the millions of people, Hispanics, black Americans, young people who said, hey, the, the, the party's leaving me. Listen, I worked for Ronald Reagan, a Democrat turned Republican, Donald Trump, yeah. Democrat turned Republican. Democrat turned Republican. I am a Democrat turned Republican. All right. the best Republicans are former Democrats. I said that on the. I, are you talking about Sal that, Miller? Uh, uh, that's right, Sal Miller. I forgot about the late Senator Sal Miller from Georgia. I said that on the air one night, and, and Pat Toomey said, "No, no." He, he he took great objection to it. He said there were some legitimate Republicans. Anyway, we're going to take a quick break. We are here, Monica Crowley and Steve Moore. I'm Cudlow. We'll be right back. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. We're talking money and politics with Monica Crowley, former Assistant Secretary of the Treasury and the Monica Crowley Podcast, and Steve Moore from FreedomWorks and Committee to Unleash Prosperity and the author of GovZilla. So, kids, let me go to another one. Steve, go to you first. The China Compete Bill, which does no such thing, as much as $350 billion. You know, I had Senator uh, Roger Marshall on from Kansas earlier in the show. Guy's, a, by the way, a rising conservative in the Senate. He's a very strong guy. I mean, this is a travesty. This is corporate welfare, industrial policy. A lot of it is the Green New Deal. It will do nothing to compete. It bails out Intel. They don't need the money. There's $200 million of private investment already in play and invested into the American chip industry. But, Steve, the sheer lunacy of more federal spending with an 8% inflation rate is beyond me. And I want to add one thing, get you both in on this. There were, I don't know, 12 or 15 Republicans who voted for this in the Senate, which is just terrible. You're exactly right. When I first came to Washington, 
in 1980, around 83-84, you, you may remember back then, Larry, I think you were working at the White House, the whole rage was this whole idea of Japanese national industrial policy. Remember that? You know, where right. you, we'd have right. the government subsidize all the industries. And everybody's, oh, this is, this is the only way we can compete with the Japanese. Of course, after a few years later, Japan went into about 15-year recession, and the United States, with tax cuts under Reagan and deregulation, had the biggest boom in history. And it's just it's amazing these bad ideas keep coming back. Uh, China's industrial policy model is going to, in my opinion, is going to collapse. It's not going to work. You know, you, you you have the government making the investment decisions, and you make a lot of bad investment decisions. Those politicians aren't very good at that. Um, I'm going to make one other quick point. You know, the worst thing you can do in, to an industry is subsidize it. I mean, look at the wind and solar industry, Larry. We've spent a hundred and eighty billion dollars subsidizing wind and solar and it's nowhere <laughs> it's six percent of our energy i actually think if 30 years ago we just said you know compete compete in a free market we'd have a more vibrant wind and solar industry than when they they chase these tax dollars and i don't want that to happen to the semiconductor industry you know that's a, a really good point you, you subsidize and protect you're going to weaken yep. the industry that's a very good point by the way our chip industry has lost a lot of luster and a lot of ground. Nowhere is that better illustrated by Intel, which is lobbying heavily for this bill, mm -hmm. which, by the way, will take is already uh, putting an investment into Germany, a big investment, and will take more tax dollars to uh, bolster that investment. Monica Crowley, I want to get your take on the China Compete Bill and the big spending part of it. But also, Monica, sort of a broader question, do you think that the China Phase One deal that was negotiated, uh, I was on the tr I was on that team, but during the Trump years, did that deal work, not work, someplace in between? What do you think? Well, you know, it was such a historic achievement on the part of President Trump and you and my boss, Secretary Mnuchin, and Ambassador Lighthizer, who went in and, and in a very hard-nosed way, negotiated a new trade deal with China. Nobody thought that that was possible. With globalism and Chinese dominance uh, and China taking full advantage of the United States and the West— and the fact that we have allowed ourselves to become so dependent, economically dependent on Chinese goods, that nobody thought it was possible. And Trump comes in and he says, yes, it is, and I'm going to force their hand. And he did it via tariffs. And I know that you've come around on tariffs. I think Steve has come around on tariffs. You have to do something to get Just for China. Just yes, for China. China. Just for China. <laughs> I understand. Just for China. <laughs> When you're dealing with the CCP, you had to do something extreme to get their yes. attention and drive them yes. to the table. And that's what Trump understood. Look, I was with Secretary Mnuchin and Ambassador Lighthizer on their last trip to China uh, before we struck the deal. It was the last round of, nego of negotiations. It was August of 2019, just a couple of weeks before the Wuhan virus alighted on the scene a couple of hundred miles away from where we were in Shanghai. Um, it, it was a fascinating process to watch. And when you ask whether or not it worked, it did work in terms of a couple of things, Larry. Number one, getting the Chinese to the table. Two, mm. getting the Chinese to understand that the Americans were serious about the trade imbalance and rectifying it. And we were done being taken advantage of. Three, it set the table for other trade deals. 
like a reworking of NAFTA with our Mexican and Canadian uh, counterparts, and also with the UK and Japan and South Korea. We got all new trade deals with those trading partners because they knew we were serious when we were talking to the Chinese. Fourth, I think, though, it, it essentially kind of, I don't want to say fell apart, but it lost its momentum when the pandemic hit. Yeah. And that then changed everything. The global economy shut down, and it changed the whole dynamic. And certainly the way President Trump then looked at the Chinese, it it became less a collaboration on fixing the trade imbalance and more of an adversarial uh, position. But I think, you know, Steve, um, when we were in Atlanta last week uh, for the America First uh, Mm -hmm. Policy uh, Conference, we did the show from down there. And I had Bob Lighthizer on the show. He's a very dear friend of mine. Of mine. Um, he made a very good, good point that he step back from the trade details and so forth. The singular achievement of President Trump was to ring the bell and alert right. America and the rest of the world about China and their yeah. unfair trading practices and their dictatorships and their centrally controlled economy. In other words, they're our adversaries, yeah. not our pals. That Really, Trump rang that bell and that that was a huge accomplishment. It sure was. And I said before the election in 2020, I, I said, I predicted, I said, if, if Trump loses and Joe Biden wins, the two biggest winners on the planet will be Vladimir Putin. And President Xi. And unfortunately, uh, right. I was right. right. That's exactly what's happened. Uh, they, they see the weakness, um, both, you know, you say it all the time, Larry, weak at home, weak abroad. And mm-hmm. uh, it's a precarious situation. We need, to get, we need to get Trump back or somebody who knows something about the economy back in the White House and, and, it's, and puts America first. And that's not jingoistic. It's just the way it should be, Monica. A president should put America first. Amen. <laughs> and, Mon- and Monica, that, you know, comes full circle around to Ukraine because, and it was Gary Kasparov, the chess master and human rights advocate who said this on my show and, and probably six weeks ago, you want to go after she, all right? The best way to go after she is to win the war in Ukraine, which in turn will knock Putin out in Moscow and send the message to Xi. That was Gary Kasparov's strategy. And since then, I've asked a bunch of people like Robert O'Brien and others, uh, and they totally agreed. So, you know, that makes this Ukrainian war, it's so important in terms of sovereignty and international law uh, and getting rid of Putin, but it really is a message to Xi that could be in the long run the most important aspect. Yeah, you know, I do believe that the United States, as the world's leader for freedom in the world, um, needs to stand up to the world's worst bad guys like Putin. So I do understand that, and I, I do support that. I do think, however, that the loose talk about regime change in Russia, and this is not a statement of apology for Vladimir Putin by any stretch, but I think when people... Uh, in the West talk loosely about regime change in Russia and getting rid of Putin, there's the assumption that what replaces Putin will be better. And in fact, what could replace Putin could be worse. And so we've got to be very, very careful as we trade carefully. Good point. Good perspective. Monica Crowley, Steve Moore. Thank you, kids. Terrific stuff. 
Folks, I'm Larry Kudlow. Join us on Fox Business, 4 to 5 p.m. Monday through Friday, and I'll be right back here on the radio next weekend. This is Greg Kelly for Priority Gold. What does it mean to be America's precious metals dealer? It means that you're in touch with the hearts and minds of those who love this country, value our freedom, and want to protect the future. Priority Gold is that precious metals dealer. They've helped thousands of Americans back their retirement with solid gold and silver. Call Priority Gold at 888-506-6439. Receive free shipping, free storage, a free investment guide, and one of the best purchase experiences in the industry. Call now or go to PriorityGold.com.